Chapter 16, Part 1 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aaron Bennett. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 16, Part 1 The Federal Constellation. As far as I can see, the American Constitution is the most wonderful work ever struck off at one time by the brain and purpose of man, Gladstone. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created free and equal, and are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Round this doctrine of the Declaration of Independence as its central sun, the constellation of states revolves. The equality of the citizen is decreed by the fundamental law. All acts, all institutions are based upon this idea. There is not one shred of privilege, hence no classes. The American people are a unit. Difference of position in the state, resulting from birth, would be held to insult the citizen. One and all they stand Brutus-like, and would brook the eternal devil to keep his state as easily as a king. Government of the people, for the people, and by the people is their political creed. The vote of an Emerson or a Lincoln weighs no more than that of the poorest Negro. The president has not a privilege which is not the birthright of every other citizen. The people are not leveled down, but leveled up to the full dignity of equal citizenship beyond which no man can go. The first voice of the people may not be always the voice of God. Indeed, sometimes it does seem to be very far from it. But the second voice of the people, their sober second thought, comes nearest to it of any tribunal, much nearer than the voice of any class, even that of the most highly educated, has ever come in any government under the sun. Hence, there is no voice in all America which has the faintest authority when the ballot speaks. It has often been objected to this Republican theory of the state that under it a dead level of uniformity must exist. The informed traveler, who knows life in America, can be relied upon to dispel this delusion and to certify that nowhere in all the world is society more exclusive or more varied than in Republican America. Certainly, it is far less so in Britain. The difference is that while in monarchical countries birth and rank tend to override personal characteristics, Republican society is necessarily founded upon real character and attainment. Natural selection has freer play. Congenial persons associate with each other, uninfluenced by birth or rank, since neither exist. Nor has wealth of itself nearly so great an influence in society in America as in Britain. It is impossible in the nature of things that it should have because it is much more easily acquired and, what is much more telling, much more easily lost. The law of acquisition is indeed as free to act in the republic as in the monarchy, but then the law of dispersion is also allowed full force in the former, where primogeniture and entail are unknown and the transfer of land is easy. There are but three generations in America from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. Under such conditions, an aristocracy of wealth is impossible. The almighty dollar is just like the restless pig which Paddy could not count because it would not stand still long enough in one place to be counted. 
Wealth cannot remain permanently in any class if economic laws are allowed free play. The federal constellation is composed of 38 stars, the states, and 11 nebulae, the territories which are rapidly crystallizing into form. The galaxy upon the national flag has grown during the century from 13 to 38 stars, and the cry is still they come. Every decade, new stars are coming into view, and ere long the entire cluster of nebulae will be added to the federal constellation. They are to come forth as the new star in Andromeda came in the fullness of time. A new state sweeps into the federal constellation every now and then like a star newborn that drops into its place and which, once circling in its placid round, not all the tumult of the earth can shake. The question arises, how is it possible to govern successfully under one head, not this nation, but this great continent of nations? The answer is, through the federal or home rule system alone, is it possible? Each of these 38 states is sovereign within its own borders. Each has its own constitution, its own parliament consisting of House and Senate, its own president, courts and judges, militia, etc., etc. All the rights of a sovereign state belong to it, except such as it has expressly delegated in common with sister states, to the central authority, the national government at Washington. One provision ensures solidity. Should a dispute arise between a state and the central government as to what powers are or are not delegated, the decision of the Supreme Court of the nation is final and binding upon all. The theory is that all their internal affairs are matters for the state to deal with and determine. All external affairs are for the nation, all local matters are for the states, all general matters for the nation. The division is easily made and maintained. The Constitution defines it in a few clauses by stating what the national government has charge of, as seen in Section 8. Any powers not here expressly delegated to the nation remain in the states to be exercised in any manner they choose. The Supreme Court of the nation stands ready to inform states or nation of their respective powers. With the exception of the claim made in the interest of the slave power, that a state had the right to secede from the Union, no serious question between state and nation has ever arisen. It is difficult to see how any can arise, since that has been definitely decided in the negative. The integrity of the nation having been assured, all other questions must be of trifling import and readily adjustable by the Supreme Court which has proclaimed the nation to be an indestructible union of indestructible states. The differentiations shown in the laws of the various states, which have resulted from the perfect freedom or home rule accorded them in their internal affairs, prove that the political institutions best suited to each community are thereby ensured, since they must necessarily be healthful growths of the body politic. Genuine outbursts of the people themselves, and therefore certain to receive their cordial and unwavering support. The number and extent of these differences in laws are surprising. The customs and habits of cold, cultured, old Massachusetts find expression in laws not best adapted for tropical, agricultural New Texas, just as the laws of England would be found less desirable for Scotland or Ireland than those which have been evolved by these communities and which would be still more freely evolved by home rule under their slightly different environments. 
These stars, the American states, revolve each upon its own axis, within its own orbit, each according to its own laws, some faster, some slower, one at one angle and one at another, but around the central sun at Washington they tread the great national orbit under equal conditions and constitute parts of one great whole. Here, then, we have the perfection of federal or home rule in its fullest and greatest development. The success of the American Union proves that the freest self-government of the parts produces the strongest government of the whole. Let us proceed to note, in the order of their importance, the various branches of the national government. We begin, of course, with the Supreme Court of the nation. Beyond and before, and higher than House or Senate or President, stands this final arbiter, sole umpire, judge of itself. More than once, Lord Salisbury has said that he envied his transatlantic brethren their Supreme Court. Speaking at Edinburgh on November 23, 1882, he said, I confess I do not often envy the United States, but there is one feature in their institutions which appears to be the subject of the greatest envy, their magnificent institution of a Supreme Court. In the United States, if Parliament passes any measure inconsistent with the Constitution of the country, there exists a court which will negative it at once, and that gives a stability to the institutions of the country which, under the system of vague and mysterious promises here, we look for in vain. He is right, and as he becomes more conversant with the results of political institutions founded upon the equality of the citizen, as I trust he may do, he will, in my opinion, find reason to envy many other of these more highly developed and in reality deeply conservative institutions as much as that which now excites his admiration. The powers of the Supreme Court seem at first sight almost too vast to entrust to any small body of men, but it is to be noted that these powers are limited by the fact that it can neither make nor execute laws nor originate anything, it only decides disputes as to existing laws, should such be properly brought before it, and its judgments are in all cases confined rigorously to the points submitted. It cannot interfere beforehand with any act of the government, nor with any act of the president, but can decide only whether such acts or orders are or are not constitutional, and the reasons for such decision must be publicly stated. Thus limited, its decision is final, unless and until decided to be unconstitutional, all acts of Congress or of the President are valid. As may be inferred, the mere knowledge on the part of legislative bodies that their acts are subject to the decision of the Supreme Court keeps them strictly within constitutional bounds. There is no use, even were there the disposition, to enact any law which is not reasonably certain to be sustained. Therefore, the regulative power of the court upon great questions remains practically in abeyance. The power is there, which is all that is required. The questions bearing upon state relations, which it is called upon to decide, are few and generally of minor importance. As, however, all causes which involve considerable sums between citizens of different states can be appealed to this court, it is kept busily engaged upon matters of large pecuniary interest, but of no political consequence. The court consists of nine judges, who hold office during life, subject, however, to impeachment by Congress for misbehavior or removal for inability to serve. 
Vacancies are filled by nominations made by the President to the Senate for confirmation, no appointment being complete until confirmed by the Senate. The salary of the judges is $10,000 per annum, and the Chief Justice receives $500 more. They can retire at 70 years of age upon full pay during life. What pittances, I hear my monarchical friends exclaim. Perhaps so, but does any court in the world command greater respect than this Supreme Court? Are abler, purer lawyers, men clearer in their great office, to be found elsewhere? Certainly not. Even my Lord Salisbury regrets that there is not such a tribunal in Britain. When I see the quiet dignity of the Supreme Court judges in Washington, their plain living, free from vulgar ostentation, their modest but refined homes, and think how far beyond pecuniary considerations their aspirations are, how foreign to their elevated natures are the coarser phases of position in modern society, I cannot but conclude that it would be most unfortunate if the emoluments of their positions should ever be made so great as in themselves to constitute a temptation, as they are in Britain. The American judge in the Supreme Court has no compeer. The pomp and parade which surround the entrance of a judge in Britain, the sordid pecuniary prize which he has secured by the appointment, his gilt coach, and all the tinsel of feudalistic times which is allowed still to survive under the idea that it adds to his dignity, but which borders upon the ridiculous in these days of general refinement, all this tinsel would seem most unfitting to the Republican judge detracting, not adding to, the inherent dignity of this great position. The Supreme Court sits in Washington, but each of the nine judges visits for a part of the year one of the nine circuits into which the country is divided and assists the circuit judges. The circuits are again divided into districts, each of which has its own court and judge. These are all national courts, the judges of which are approved by the Senate upon the nomination of the President and hold office during life or good behavior. The whole forms the national judiciary, to which every citizen has the right to appeal in any cause involving the citizens or corporations of another state. We come next to the legislative department. This consists of two houses, a House of Representatives and a Senate, which meet at Washington twice a year upon fixed dates, March and December. The House is composed of 325 representatives Every state sends members in exact proportion to its population as shown by each decadal census. The number of members is not regularly increased. The number of population to each representative is raised. Thus, in 1870, every 138,000 inhabitants returned a member. In 1880, it required 154,000. After a census is taken, the population is divided by number of members, the quota required to return a member being thus ascertained. Each state is then informed of the number due to it and arranges its electoral districts accordingly. Thus, every ten years, electoral power is fairly because equally adjusted to the satisfaction of all. By so simple an automatic device, the question of representation is removed from politics and settled forever upon the rock of fair and equal representation. It never can be settled in a free state until equal electoral districts are reached. Educated man demands equality, nor can he rest until he has obtained it. This secured, he becomes quiet and contented. Representatives hold office for two years, their term expiring with each Congress on the 4th of March of every second year. 
As members are always eligible for re-election, and as the practice is to return men of ability from term to term, the new House is always under the guidance of experienced legislators. Members are paid $5,000 per year in traveling expenses. The power of the purse is as tenaciously held by the House in Washington as in London. All money bills originate in it by express provision of the Constitution. Alike in this, the two houses present an entirely different appearance. On entering the house at Washington, the visitor is struck by the contrast. Instead of the uncomfortable benches at Westminster and the lack of all facilities for reading or writing, the newer house represents its members all sitting in good, easy chairs at separate desks like so many good boys at school. They are busily at work with their correspondence or consulting books of reference. Pages answer their call. They attend to their legislative duties when fresh during the day. When a division is called, instead of wasting 20 minutes and requiring every member to get up and walk past tellers, the business is done in a few minutes without disturbance. The clerk calls the roll of names alphabetically, and each member nods or shakes his head or calls out I or no. A record is kept and result announced and business proceeds. How simple. Business is not often obstructed in the house. When an orator exhausts its patience, he is made to sit down by a call for the question, and unless he gets a majority in favor of hearing him further, he is ruled out. Yet neither party complains that this rule has worked serious injury. No party seeks to change it. It has not prevented full discussion, and it has enabled the House to transact business properly. Next in order follows that one American institution which has received the unqualified approval of every man who has given an opinion upon the subject. I never heard even a British Tory utter a word in its disparagement. I cannot imagine what a man could say except in praise of the United States Senate. Proud indeed may the man be who can style himself Senator. To this August body, each of the states sends two members, six years being the term of office. These are elected by the legislatures of the states and hence reflect the popular desire. Senators are, of course, the adherents of one or other political party as it obtains sway in the various states. As the terms of service are so arranged that only one-third of the senators retire unless re-elected every two years, the tendency is for the Senate to respond somewhat less promptly than the lower house to the changes of public opinion. The Senate has large powers. All laws must be passed by it as well as by the House. No treaty with a foreign power is valid without its approval by a two-third vote. All ambassadors and agents of foreign powers must be approved by it. Much has been said about the patronage of the President, but he cannot appoint a postmaster unless this nominee is passed upon and confirmed by this August tribunal. It has been said by more than one political writer that the American Senate is the ideal second chamber of the world. Some assert that it is the only second chamber which possesses real power and is permanently fixed in the hearts of the masses. It is certainly regarded in America as a great promotion to be elevated from the House to the Senate, and it is nonetheless certain that the entire nation regards the Senate with pride and affection. All officials in America being paid, the salary of a senator is the same as that of a representative, $5,000 per year and traveling expenses. Lord Salisbury will be envying this American institution as well as the Supreme Court ere long, mark you, for his own second chamber gives unmistakable evidence of decay, 
and in good time he may even come to see that an elected president is preferable to the hereditary ruler. We cannot despair of his reaching finally to the full measure of the political equality of the citizen, since he begins so well with the chief American institution, the Supreme Court. Here is indeed a lucky hit. Since these words were written, a member of Parliament sends me confirmation of this prophecy. The hopeful student of Republican institutions, my Lord Salisbury, has said in a recent speech, The Americans, as you know, have a Senate. I wish we could institute it in this country. Marvelous in efficiency and strength. So another American institution envied. Truly, this former Saturday reviewer is a more promising pupil than Mr. Gladstone himself, and almost equal to Lord Rosebery. Nothing easier, my lord, than to get a copy of the American Senate. The secret of its marvelous strength and efficiency is an open one. You know it well. The Senate springs from and rests upon the suffrages of the people. There is not a trace of hereditary poison in its veins to steal away its power. In an elective assembly such as this, a man of real power like Lord Salisbury would be twice the man he is when leading a set of hereditary accidents. Having already obtained Lord Salisbury's endorsement of the Supreme Court and the Senate, I am encouraged to go a step further and commend for his approval the institution he should next endorse, a parliament of duly paid members elected by equal electoral districts for a fixed term of two years. Until this is secured, the government of Britain must remain exposed to every passing gust of popular emotion and hence exercise no steadying effect in periods of excitement. A British ministry does not govern, but bows to the clamor it should withstand. And upon my British readers, let me once more impress the truth that in all the elements of true conservatism, in all that goes to make up a strong government, a power competent to maintain justice and to defeat attacks upon the rights of property of others, and when necessary, to keep the ship of state with its head against the wildest hurricane, the American system, as I must compliment Lord Salisbury upon being one of the first European statesmen to discover, is infinitely beyond the monarchical. The man who knows both well, and has property in both lands, may be trusted to tell his inquirers that his Republican title gives him much the less uneasiness. This is further demonstrated by the highest place being accorded by the world to the American national debt. End of chapter 16, part 1. The Federal Constellation. Recording by Aaron Bennett.